Welcome to Sound of the 60s Radio. Uh, this is your host, your uncle. Uh, I'm joined here by my uh, 21-year-old girlfriend, uh, who is going to steal some stuff from your room. Uh, and we are here to... Uh, what are we talking about, baby doll? <laughs> that actually Wait, sounds I should, real. I shouldn't say... Baby doll, I feel like, is not... That was, like, enough. too much, I think. What are, what are we talking about, Bird. That's maybe a more, more British. What 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 are we talking about, my little chickadee? No, that's too much. She killed it. That's real good though. I, you know, I gotta say, uh-huh. I am fully boomerified. You, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you've made that clear. Big baby you, boomer over here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, you've been, you've been. Liz called me at three a.m. last night. It was like there was such promise in that young man, <laughs> and they took him from Dude, us. Dude, I was like that close i can't believe it you know i just get real sucked in and passionate about all i'm reading about yeah i like the presidents that weren't assassinated like um <laughs> like donald well, most J. of them i guess <laughs> yeah donald fucking trump baby <laughs> donald j Fu- this is your other uncle and i'm here to tell you that that other pussy uncle who's crying his eyes out about that little queer mo who's driving around in a limousine like a woman Donald, Donald J. Trump. <laughs> Donald J. Trump was better than Kennedy because Donald J. Donald J. Trump did not respect at least some of the troops. And there is no evidence that Kennedy didn't respect the troops. When Donald Trump said, fucking suck my dick to POWMIAs, I thought that rocked. <laughs> Who's even a POW anymore? <laughs> Where are you hit? Where, who is uh... taking you captive? Uh, you know, I saw one of those flags the other day. Me too. One of the like MIA flags, and I was like, "Huh, you don't see those around anymore." Who's MIA? You know, you used to see a lot of that. They know Not where so all of them are. Yeah, I think they're all found. We found them all. Yeah. Uh, what are you a PO? What are you in Tora Bora? You know, you know, a little fucking thing. You know, no, you aren't. And if you are, well, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you making that funny face? I was my, my glasses are just askew. Oh, I thought you were doing a funny face. I'm not. That's just Liz is saying that, listeners, and this is actually just my face. I wasn't making a face. <laughs> At least whatsoever. you buttoned your shirt up finally. It's still three down. No, um, you had it like you know. Five it was down. really hot in here. Oh my god. We have been recording. It is now nine p.m. We have been recording since I can't remember when we started. Five. Yeah. No. Hello, everyone. Welcome. This is Trunan. I'm Liz. My name is Brace. Really? Yeah, I guess so. Um, <laughs> wow. I'm Brace. I think I said that already. We're joined by producer Young Chomsky. Oh and listen, you know the podcast episode that you see at the top when you click on the podcast? Mm. Guess what? That's what, what this one's about. Oh, my God. Should no, that, we're going to keep going because okay. that you can't just say that. <laughs> Fucking hell. Okay, okay, okay. Everyone, I'm sorry. Brace is very tired. I'm so um, hungry. If you haven't, but most likely you have because I hope so anyway. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one in this series, in our little JFK series, highly recommend. Uh, listen to that. 
And now you're going to listen to part two. So you get to do the what lazy one? <laughs> I know. I I just was talking, had no idea where I was going with That's it. That's what happened to me, and I got in trouble for it. Let's play the episode. So nice of you to join us in this hotel in the Swiss Alps. You have, of course, myself, Brace Belden, representing the national interests of my country of origin, Bulgaria. You have Liz Franzak, uh, who is, of course, representing Liechtenstein, one of the great powers. You have independent researcher Ben, representing Manchukuo, uh, which I pronounced correctly. And an Aaron Good, who's got his PhD in the Deep State book, a dissertation coming out soon on Skyhorse Press, will be representing Nicaragua. It is the end of World War II, and these four great powers are coming together for a conference in order to negotiate a surrender of, I can't really figure out which one of these countries would be on which side. I don't really know what Liechtenstein did much during World War II, but let's start the episode anyways. You know, it was, we did plenty, okay? We did yeah. plenty. <laughs> Actually, I do believe, unless I'm mistaken it for World War I, I think Liechtenstein did contribute 60 troops to one side, but I can't remember which side it was. I also might be wrong on that. 60 anyways, troops would probably be a lot for them. Welcome. That was 90% of the population. Welcome <laughs> to JFK 101. Two. Actually, this would be JFK 102. Uh, and Ben and Aaron, so glad to see you two again. Uh, how you guys doing? Very well. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, I'm great. It's great to be here again. <laughs> it's been so long since I've seen you. Listen, there's a little peek behind the curtain. We finished recording the last episode three minutes ago. And so I was trying to pretend like it had been four days or something. I don't know why we pretend. We're not radio people. You know what? We're people for the people. Let's be honest. We're yeah, all here because enough. we're all truth seekers. So here's the truth. We just finished recording the other part. Now we're starting the second part. For those who are keeping up on whether my apartment is still very hot, uh, I turn the heat off, but it's I'm still sweating like a pig. And you so still um, haven't buttoned your shirt. Because it's still really hot. Okay. Uh anyways, we are sort of continuing last week's episode and talking about some of the people who were involved in both the milieu that killed JFK and who literally did help kill JFK. And uh I think one of the one of the most sort of famous names that is connected to uh to the JFK assassination is, is, is the name Alan Dulles, uh, Alan Dulles. And of course his brother, John Foster Dulles, who died before he could get the opportunity to help kill JFK, uh, are two uh, towering giants towers, the twin towers uh, over the American landscape. Um, and so Ben, tell me a little bit about this Dulles guy. Where does he come from? What's his deal? Is he good or bad? <laughs> Alan Dulles is a is a land of contrast. No, he's yes. absolutely not a land of no contrast. No. Very few contrasts no, in Alan Dulles. He's pretty one note, total asshole in his in his personal relationships as well as mm -hmm. in uh, what what he enabled. Yeah, and he's obviously an important figure just to uh, for people who are maybe uninitiated. The the fact that he was a CIA director uh, and he was fired by JFK after the after the Bay of Pigs fiasco. And then he resurfaces as one of the members of the Warren Commission investigating uh, how JFK was killed. So he is obviously, a, uh, even in the public eye, of course, a, a highly relevant figure and connected to this to this event. Um, and Brace, you mentioned when we were talking before that he's kind of this link back to the the post World War II and even pre World War II uh, mm -hmm. fascist spider network. Um, and when we talk about um, 
sort of like uh, financial capital controlling American foreign policy, that's like Alan Dulles personified, essentially. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, he's he straddles this line between diplomat, lawyer, uh, and and later, uh, you know, intelligence uh, operator. And, uh, you know, he got his start. He was one of the representatives of, for the American side uh, to the Versailles conference after uh, after World War One. So he's he's got like these old, you know, diplomatic uh, connections that he made when he was doing that. He was a part of that uh, whole event. But during the uh, run up to World War Two, uh, I think we briefly sort of mentioned like Prescott Bush, H.W. Bush's yeah. father, uh, being involved in uh, many of these German American joint uh, ventures and also German Very businesses. Much so. And Alan Dulles was directly involved in this kind of thing. Um, he was involved with a bank called Schroeder Bank, uh, which actually was the straight up uh, uh, bank of the SS. I mean, they literally handled like the disbursement of of pay to the people in the SS. And that was a that was a group that Alan Dulles was directly involved with. Uh, but immediately post war, uh, he was involved with uh, Sullivan and Cromwell. He was a he was a lawyer, a partner there. Um, and sort of while he was ostensibly a a uh, private citizen um, was was essentially uh, agitating for the creation for the continuation of uh, these intelligence gathering activities uh, that these would be conducted during wartime. Uh, these wartime intelligence gathering activities would be conducted during peacetime, um, and it it stemmed from uh, you know you have this you have the pretext of the Cold War as being a justification for why you're going to do this. But mm-hmm. he, being a business person, Sullivan and Cromwell representing business interests like the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company or the United Fruit Company, uh, he understood how this apparatus could be used uh, for business purposes to advance the interests of, of certain businesses uh, as against uh, the the leaders of, of certain post-colonial nations uh, that were not behaving. Uh, so he, he I, I think, very importantly represents like this nexus of several worlds and is is uh, a great synecdoche for like this this control that finance capital has uh, over over international affairs uh, via the the American intelligence apparatus. Uh, so when it's it's probably not would not surprise you to know or to to learn that that he and Kennedy uh, did not get along very well, uh, and and were basically directly at odds. I mean their their vision for, um, I mean. Uh, Alan Dulles, uh, the, the CIA was not CIA enough for Alan Dulles, right? Like he yeah. was running this OPC group and they were involved in the, uh, in essentially rigging the Italian election in 1948. That was one of their first big mm-hmm. sort of trial runs for this kind of thing. Um, and, and basically, uh, uh, Peter Dale Scott argues they sort of used this as a, this OPC group as a Trojan horse and then took over the rest of the CIA from within, uh, via that group. So they were throughout this whole period uh, prior to Kennedy becoming becoming president, uh, starting in 1948 and continuing all the way up until, you know, obviously the Bay of Pigs operation. Uh, they were involved in all of these kinds of machinations to try to take out uh, foreign, foreign leaders and to manipulate foreign elections. Um, and this was not Kennedy's style. This was not what he, how he wanted to conduct American foreign policy. Um, and so he sort of found himself when Kennedy, uh, because Eisenhower, as we, as we briefly mentioned earlier, you know, Eisenhower was, was working on this Bay of Pigs operation, which was going to be this attempt to create this popular uprising. I think really it was actually an attempt to sort of provide a pretext for a, a full on military invasion of Cuba. Right. Um, 
but but Kennedy was essentially uh, and you know you know he let it go he let it go on he coughed to it he admitted it was a total disaster and a huge step yeah. but he certainly let it happen in the first place partly because uh, he had people you know Alan Dulles and other people saying well if we don't if we don't send these guys over there you're gonna have a bunch of Q and exiles running around New Orleans and Florida and everywhere else who knows what'll happen you don't want that do you so you better send them better send them to Cuba. Uh, but as we as we mentioned, I think in the last last uh, last segment that that um, you know Kennedy uh, wanted to minimize the amount of American involvement in it. He wanted to make sure that uh, that there was no follow up military involvement. He promised all, uh, he basically told Dulles there wouldn't be. Um, and so when it became first off such a disaster, I mean it was a huge it, it was a huge disaster for the Americans. It made the Americans look terrible because there had been um, there had been covert support for uh the cuban exiles before you know they had even supplied them bombers which they painted with like mm. you know free cuba colors and and conducted these bombing raids and things like this uh but this was like a very overt uh very embarrassing on the public stage event where you know you had these american supported exiles being uh marched around by by revolutionary cuban soldiers i mean it was a it was a loss there's no other way to put it um and while Kennedy is trying to manage, you know, the optics for the for the American government, meanwhile, Dulles is in the press, badmouthing him and saying that this was Kennedy's fault, uh, yeah. you know, using these, you know, these these media assets that uh, Dulles and the agency had cultivated, uh, and they and so that was just too much. I mean, that was Kennedy could not allow that to stand. Uh, there were other things as well. I mean, he was just upset about the entire thing, and so he he canned him essentially, and. Um, uh, Dulles has, has said some interesting things about Kennedy since then. I think there's a quote, uh, yeah. Aaron, that you had, uh, uh, after Kennedy was killed, uh, where, where Dulles does not seem, uh, particularly broken up, uh, that Jack Kennedy was dead. Yeah, he was, he always cultivated this sort of, uh, professorial air about him, um, and it seemed a congenial, uh, you know, person who was good at, uh, you know, interacting with, with lots of different kinds of people, had a certain amount of charisma that you'd expect from somebody in that, in those social circles. But, and his biographer said, you know, this is the only time he ever really like broke out of character. And he said of Kennedy, um, he said that little Kennedy, he thought he was a God. Yeah. This is near, this is like in the later years of his life. And, um, I think that that is very revealing because, you know, he's saying that Kennedy thinks that he has all of this power, but the, the source of power, you know, you get power, unfortunately in civilizations by serving power. And that power typically comes from being able to insinuate yourself in a position where you can expropriate and exploit the rest of the population that's not unique to western society but it's much more complicated and uh you know technologically advanced in our civilization and Dulles was a guy who was very much a servant of those those power centers um he he's probably most responsible for creating the cia yeah. uh, in the first place that like he was an oss guy responsible for uh you know various capers uh during world war ii uh, including helping Nazis, you know, escape and negotiating a secret surrender and all that. But then afterwards, um, there was some of these early foreign policy issues. Um, you know, he's at Sullivan Cromwell, and uh, again, and in 1949, the CIA has been established. Uh, 
but I, I guess he's working on behalf of the Sullivan Cromwell, but he's also like the, the council on foreign relations. The Dulles brothers are very mm-hmm. prominent in that basically running it on, you know, on behalf of like Rockefeller interests and the CFR is sort of a, an American version of the round table, which is this, you know, so it's an Anglophile group of people who ha- think that finance capital should be running the foreign policy of a country in, a, in an imperialist fashion. And um, one of the things that Dulles does uh, before, um, you know, the Kennedy, before he's the director of the CIA, is he goes to Tehran, Iran, to meet with the Shah of Iran. And he represents a consortium of 11 U.S. engineering firms called Overseas Consultants Incorporated. They always give themselves these boring Such names, a beautiful right? beautiful name. And, and he negotiates a, in the money in, the, in dollars of that time period, a $650 million deal to modernize Iran, which, which at that point was the biggest international development deal in history. Another member and of the Players Club. He was definitely a Players Club. And then later that year in November, he hosts a dinner party for the Shah in a dining room of the CFR in New York. And the Shah says, Iran is eager to welcome American capital to give it all possible safeguards nationalization of industry is not planned famous last words well Well, those are no those are those are first words it comes back around because of course you know the whole story of uh the shah or uh, the shah being replaced in power by a democratically elected official who the cia overthrows in their first regime change operation over that issue of nationalizing oil and dulles as I recall, he had gone around New York business clubs, uh, you know, or, or uh, country clubs, uh, uh, and sort of wanted to pass the hat around to try to get people to give money to organize the overthrow of Mossadegh first. And then at some point, it was decided that no, we're going to bring the CIA into this. We're going to do this stuff. We're going to take over. So this was, uh, you know, Dulles was one of the key figures in that, and the CIA starts planning for this. Even though Truman doesn't authorize it, Truman is a little bit wary of the CIA. I don't have great admiration for Truman, you know, for creating the yeah. CIA and for nuking two defenseless yeah, cities piece of shit. at the end of World War II. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's one of the nice. Not things, enough I guess. words for that. You call, yeah, I mean, I've been to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's it's staggering to to think about it, but and then on top of that, he created the CIA. <laughs> so, but, but he did have some sort of holdovers from the Roosevelt new deal kind of approach of like democratic governance and, uh, and a counterbalance to corporate power. And so he would not authorize that, but the CIA went ahead and started planning it anyway, even before Eisenhower uh, takes office. And, you know, once he does, then Dulles is appointed uh, director of CIA and they go about overthrowing the, uh, the government of Iran over this issue of oil, even though it was, it wasn't even an American company that was really aggrieved there. There's the issue of, uh, you know, the, the fear of a, of a good example that, you know, the CIA is always, you're like, why is the CIA bothering with this country? That's not even that important, but it's that, that comes up again and again. Like you cannot, we cannot let the little people still countries, uh, nationalize these resources because then other countries will get uppity and, uh, that's just not going to happen. And so Dulles has that, that mentality of what, you know, corporate interests and the national interests are exactly the same. And that, that's the mentality of uh, the Dulles brothers. And if you don't agree with that, then you're obviously a communist. What's good for General Motors is good for the country kind of thing. It was personal interest too, because the J.H. Schroeder Bank, which he was a representative of, was, was uh, heavily involved in the Anglo-Iranian oil company. I mean, it was a very direct 
business relationship that he had with with these these oil interests in Iran. Uh, not to mention the fact that, uh, uh, well, that the, the the MI6 was also heavily involved in this as well. It's like the yeah. uh, you know uh, an early um, an early joint operation with them, which would become a a, a theme, certainly a theme with a Five Eyes. A fruitful relationship. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and the thing is, Dulles is Dulles is often credited too for for making the CIA, at least the original sort of iterants of the CIA, really just like a place where you go if you're bored with your your Wall Street law firm. I mean, a, a tremendous amount of the, of the people at the upper, but also middle echelons of the CIA in its uh, in its beginning and and for quite a while afterwards actually came from a lot of these sort of white shoe law firms. I mean, that makes sense because just like in in Britain during World War II. You know, if you really, if you had money and you had connections, you didn't go into, you know, maybe you went into the Air Force, maybe you went into the Navy, but like, you know, if you're really one of these, you know, these, these, these hustler guys, you go into intelligence because it's, it's not only good for, uh, for making connections, it's, it's good probably for business of the firms you represent too. And sort of nobody is more emblematic of that than Alan Dulles. Yeah. And I think too, what's key is when we say the CIA and when we say how it kind of operates, it isn't just a bunch of intelligence officers, right? And he's really key in how that was kind of like fleshed out into this much bigger network even where, um, you know, I mean, he basically set up agents in every level of government, like at every level of bureaucracy, like no wing of the, of the U.S. government bureaucracy was like too small for there to be one, uh, like at least one CIA guy in. And he, I mean, it was like very clear that he wanted uh, bureaucrats, CIA bureaucrats everywhere that were only accountable to him, but that those departments had no clue were CIA. Um, I mean, and this, I mean, it begins at the Pentagon, of course, but it expands into, I mean, the FAA, it becomes huge at the FAA, it, uh, you know, expands into, I mean, you could say it's like Department of Transportation, Department of HHS. I mean, everywhere, everywhere. Yeah, and they begin cracking down on raw milk with the FDA. <laughs> no, but I think a bit. You know, in the in the previous episode where we talk about these kind of like roadblocks that Kennedy was like kind of like uh, coming up against, kind of like everywhere he looked. So much of that was the groundwork that Dulles had laid out of this kind. When we when we think of the sort of like shadow government, this is what Alan Alan Dulles set up. Um, we mentioned uh, uh, Proudy. Is that how you say his name? Proudy, Prudy. I never know which way to say it. Um, but he was the guy who was running everything out of the Pentagon for Del- for Dulles, right? Yeah, he was in charge of uh, of allowing the CIA's covert operations to have uh, military support, and he never had to. He never had to sign a secrecy agreement uh, like like normal CIA officers because mm. he was Pentagon, and so that's he says that that's why he didn't mind blowing the whistle on some of these things once he left. And he left in 63 after the Kennedy assassination, specifically because he felt that he knew what had happened. And he said everybody else did too. And then someone asked him, like, everybody, like McNamara? And he just said, everybody. One of his main uh, protégés from the OSS days uh, over in the Pacific realm was Ed Lansdale. And if you read... The Sterling Seagrave uh, book, Gold Warriors, which is, he's not, the Seagraves aren't trained historians. And so there are certain, you know, parts of it that might not hold up to close scrutiny. But 
the expert on Japan and on the U.S. empire, one of the foremost uh, academics that dealt with these issues, Chalmers Johnson, mm-hmm. gave a great review of Gold Warriors and said that the main conclusions are basically correct, that Ed Lansdale was able to recover a huge amount of gold in the Philippines that the Japanese had looted, and the uh, these were used to corrupt politics and set up all sorts of slush funds. They basically fund the... Uh, LDP, which essentially is the one-party ruling party in Japan, and their entire uh, government or their entire uh, you know political fortunes were established with 175 million dollars in diamonds and platinum that Yoshio Kadama, the uh, yakuza gangster slash admiral war criminal, should have been uh, executed as a Class A war criminal. Instead, was sprang from jail as a CIA asset, set up the LDP. And that is the party that ruled Japan for all these years and other slush funds, some of which likely were used in Watergate. Like they never really investigate where Mm. some of those places are that Nixon gets his uh, money because of his old connections to the China lobby and so on. And so there's this, uh, you know, the the dullest people and their protégés like Ed Lansdale, who appear again and again, perhaps even in Dealey Plaza. Um, they all become networked. Like it's it's really this net these networks of people in business and elsewhere. Uh, so, so for all these things that we think of as being conspiratorial, there's elements of just that are very similar to the way people network to really try to accomplish much of anything. Right. Right. Um, right. Even though your other people might network to get like better jobs or whatever a book deal or something like that like these people are are the stakes are much higher but what they are doing and relying on friendships and debts and uh, people that they can rely on for this and that uh, this is this is the way that they operate and since they have all the money in the world it makes it easier to network because you have you more to incentivize people to want to be in your network and and so on yeah uh, Ed Lansdale uh, too I should mention was uh, was Basically, the CIA or the U.S.'s point man in fighting the hooks in uh, in in the Philippines after the after the Second World War, um, and sort of the most famous anecdote about that, and the thing that most people actually know about him, I think, at, at the expense expense of basically everything else, is that uh, is that he would get his guys to drain the blood from uh, from gorillas or probably just villagers uh, they captured necks. And then I think hang them and uh, and and say they were bitten by vampires because he was really into like folklore and that kind of stuff because the, you know sort of an early progenitor of psychological warfare. If I'm not mistaken, too, I think that uh, that Cordwainer Smith, one of my favorite science fiction authors, um, who is also I believe uh, the adopted son or the godson of Chiang Kai Shek. Uh, who wrote the actual first manual on psychological warfare uh, for the U.S. Army. Uh, had many of the same views, and he was based around essentially the same area. I think it's another one of those cases. I mean, you send some of these sickos over over to the east, and then they're like, "Well, these are primitive people who will basically believe anything I tell them." Uh, and, and you see that a lot with Vietnam, um, you know, with the with the the ghost helicopters they tried to do and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, it rarely did those tactics work. I mean, I'm sure when the Huck saw that they they drained the blood from people, they'd be like. Damn, they really drained this guy's blood. <laughs> That's horrible. Yeah, there's different reasons why it could work in a place like the Philippines. A lot of it going back to centuries of colonial rule for the Spanish yeah. and then yeah. by the Americans, that brutal war after the Spanish-American war where they just kill tens of thousands of people. And so they're really 
wasn't the same ability to resist uh, American, you know, neo-colonialism after after World War II. Um, but they would eventually run, of course, into more trouble with a different group of people in uh, in Southeast Asia, and Lansdale played a big part in that. Dulles shows, we mentioned that Dulles has a bit of a recurring role because after he gets fired by Kennedy, I mean, he comes back. We said he was appointed as part of the uh, Warren Commission, which now that's pretty shocking that someone who had just been fired could <laughs> be asked to come back uh, to uh, help oversee that report. How did that happen? Well, it's um, there's a myth that was circulated that Robert Kennedy had had okayed this, but that is not true. No he was a, a bitter enemy of, of the Dulleses. And in fact, after JFK fires Alan Dulles from the head of CIA, he assigns Robert the task of finding out if there's any other Dulles in the government. Yes. It turns out there was. There was a, a cousin in the State Department, and she got fired just for having the last name Dulles. <laughs> Classic. Which I, think is, which I think is good. You know what? If Jeremy cause. Corbyn had... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I won't get into <laughs> Uh, well, I will say, I will say um, that the the whole like Dulles was asked to be on a by RFK thing that only came out after RFK was killed, yeah. uh, and uh, was no longer in a position to say uh, say otherwise. He launched a big lobbying campaign to be put on that commission. He was the only guy on the Warren Commission who did not have like a regular day job, and so he was uh, by. There's a, a book. It might be called the Warren Omission, but it's one of these uh, Kennedy <laughs> JFK books. Great name, right? And uh, they they did uh, they looked at all the meetings and they said who was there at each meeting and who was most active, and he was the most active by far but joined by Gerald Ford and mm. uh, John McCloy, that they were like the troika of people who really essentially ran the, the Warren Commission. And as, you know, um, Oliver Stone has Jim Garrison say in JFK, you know, well, he shouldn't have been on the Warren Commission. He should have been a suspect, like, which is, and he, he kept from the Warren Commission the fact that there were assassination attempts uh, that the CIA had organized against Castro using mafia figures, um, which, was relevant. Even the CIA later admitted that this was involved some sort of cover up of, you know, pro for benign reasons, of course. But like it's so obvious that that was a uh, a cover up and a, a, some misfeasance or malfeasance on the part of Alan Dulles. Yeah, that's the thing about the the role that he played is that it's it's not just that people didn't know about all of that stuff at the time, which heavily colored how people interpreted the, the information they got from the Warren Commission, but it's that Alan Dulles was the person who was making sure that nobody knew about that stuff. Right. Yeah, like exactly. all of the all of the relevant documents about Mongoose, about Operation 40, which heavily implicated this group of Cuban exiles that were involved in the assassination, all of that was kept and also was kept from the House Select Committee on Assassinations as well. But uh, so this is a I mean this is a pattern of the CIA placing its people in a position and then just totally making sure that that information does not reach these investigators. And yeah, like he, he beyond, uh, and then of course, even beyond like making sure that those documents didn't, didn't, uh, surface also ensuring that, um, this sort of, uh, uh, I don't know how much we want to talk about Oswald, but like the, the, the stories about, uh, who he was and where he came from, 
uh, certainly he was one of the prime movers behind uh, the entire story of uh, the initial mm-hmm. fa- you know, what Peter Dale Scott calls the phase one story. And then the phase two story about who Oswald was uh, and Dulles was one of the people controlling that apparatus that was creating that story about who he was. And he is uh, right at the very top of, of the investigation itself. Uh, so his, his, it's just so, it's so damning in hindsight, especially given what we know now about all of the things that he was up to. Uh, the idea that he was running this investigation uh, seems, I mean, it seems almost farcical at this point in time. Like yeah, how absolutely. is it possible that you can take it Seriously, given what we know about him and given what we know about what he was doing, even at the time, it should have been obviously he had an incredible conflict of interest given yeah. that he had been fired by JFK. But um, but especially now, the, the idea that you could take the commission's report seriously, given his I, actually, I think there's a f- uh, uh, funny anecdote about Kwame Nkrumah, the, the uh, Ghanaian yes. independence leader. And, uh, you know, somebody asked him what he thought of the the. Uh, Warren Commission report, and he just pointed to Alan Dulles's name on the cover and said "whitewash." Right? Everybody, many people at the time understood uh, the implications of the fact that he was at the top of that investigation. Yeah, that this African business also Nkrumah is one case, but also Lumumba in Congo. There's reason to believe that the assassination happened when it did because of Kennedy's victory. That they knew Kennedy had a different position on. Uh, African nationalism and on the Lumumba on Lumumba and the Congo and Congo in general, which is one of the most resource rich places on the planet. And it has been for a long, long time recognized as such and plundered as such. Even today, the cobalt in your phones uh, is, is is mined by slave labor, cobalt and coltan really valuable. And the country's still a mess in part because of these things that people like Dulles did. And uh, that famous picture of Kennedy getting the information that, you know, before he's even able to take office, uh, Lumumba, who he had supported, has been assassinated, and Kennedy just looks so depressed. And uh, he's sitting there, like looking with his hand resting, his head resting in his hand, yeah, yeah. Uh, looking despondent. And so contrast that with Eisenhower. Kennedy is very sad about this. Eisenhower, meanwhile, authorized the assassination, and then yeah, I mean, OBJ yeah. afterwards. Who does he put as the puppet ruler of Congo? But uh, Joseph Mobuto who was the guy who basically killed uh, Lumumba. And so you see there another example of this uh, continuity between LBJ and uh, the Eisenhower Dulles you know, foreign policy and how Kennedy went against it. And additionally, with Kwame Nkrumah, Kennedy supported him and his uh, independence and, and his efforts to become economically independent from the U.S. Now, once Kennedy leaves, uh, Nkrumah realizes that Independence is kind of uh, a false that they enjoy. And so he writes the book, uh, Neocolonialism, right? He coins the term neocolonialism to describe the way that even without formal colonialism, the economic relationships haven't changed and they're still exploited and covert operations are installing uh, regimes that function as, you know, in a similar way to colonialism. So he writes this book and for his trouble in 1965, the CIA overthrows him also. Yeah. Um, And it's just, and so, you know, even he, he sees this business Kitty. with Kennedy and he recognizes what it is, you know, and he recognizes that Dulles is a, is a part of this, um, which I think these these third world figures knew, like Sukarno, you know, felt similarly. Mm-hmm. Um, people uh, recognized what what uh, Kennedy represented for uh, people in the formerly colonized uh, world and that his assassination was a tragedy for them. 
I mean, and it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just Dulles. I think Dulles is a, is a good sort of like main figure. I think he was probably the prime mover behind a lot of these things. But I mean, if you really start like reading about Kennedy's, especially his last days, it seems like the entirety of the national security apparatus that even the what people that directly surrounded him, um, you know, in office, you know, his Joint Chiefs of Staff and stuff like that, were. Uh, against every single move, even he the made. Secret Service. Yeah, even the Secret Service. But but you know we talked about this a little bit in the last episode. But like you got to understand, a lot of the people that Ken they were on Kennedy's Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know the heads of each of the departments: the Army, Navy, Air Force, etc. Uh, wanted to, if not just invade Cuba or fight a war with Russia, to literally nuke. First strike nuke other countries. Uh, by other countries, I mean primarily Russia, but you know Cuba too. Uh, you know China. Uh, Curtis LeMay is one of these cretins, and uh, he is one of the most like insane, disgusting people in the cohort of insane, disgusting freaks that were in the upper echelons of power during that time. I mean, this was one of the people. You know, we talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was one of the people who chose them as targets, uh, knowing full well obviously full of civilians. I mean, there's no excuse that you could possibly come up with. Although sort of the phase two, I guess, excuse for that is that uh, it prevented a, every man, woman, and child in Japan would have fought back, uh, which has not been the case of any country uh, in modern history. He, he firebombs Tokyo, but yeah. if you can believe this, and he, he, may have, uh, he could have been involved in the, in the selection of targets, but he came out eventually as not supporting the decision to drop the bomb oh really if, if yes yeah, six of seven of like your five-star generals didn't uh support that decision and even lemay who as you point out is completely psychotic did want to uh bomb cuba and if he had had his way it would have resulted in a nuclear exchange because there were already nukes on cuba during the cuban missile crisis but they were pissed at kennedy they didn't know these things until later and uh, McNamara found out about that at a conference in like the 90s and was like, oh, you already had nukes there. Why didn't you tell us that? We didn't know that, which is so similar That's... to the Dr. Strangelove thing, right? We're like, yeah, why didn't you yeah. tell us Absolutely. about this doomsday machine? It would have been, what's the point of having it if it's, uh, if you don't know about your deterrent, <laughs> you know? Um, but, and the last thing that LeMay did in his career in, in politics, well, for one thing, it's thought that he may have been the person supervising the autopsy at Bethesda. There's a uh, reason to suspect that that was the case. Uh, people talking about a general in the back mm -hmm. with uh, a cigar the whole time, stinking Cutting up the place. Cutting out a little triangle. Yeah. And, and, but his la the last thing that he did was he was actually the running mate of George Wallace yeah. on that, just uh, the closest thing to a full-on American fascist presidential ticket. They talk about Trump, but like a Wallace LeMay ticket oh makes <laughs> Trump seem like Adlai Stevenson or something. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's really wild, uh, that, that fellow and that mindset that prevailed, uh, I mean, JFK, among the joint chiefs. JFK apparently thought he was like an actually insane, like was literally an, an insane person, which, you know, one wonders maybe get that guy out of the room, but I, I guess that's not how joint chiefs of staff uh, meetings work. Um, but, but he is, he is also famous for inventing the phrase uh, bomb them back to the stone age in, uh, in reference to North Vietnam, um, which uh, I guess that, that, well, they didn't bomb them back to the stone age, but they certainly tried. Yeah. He said, fry them. That was his response. Fry them about Cuba. So Jesus there's Christ. that also. There's many colorful ways to describe uh, dropping, you know, ordinance on people. We got this guy James Jesus Angleton, 
uh, cruising around too. And now Angleton is actually, I believe, next to next to uh, Harvey, Mike, one of my favorite characters uh, from the CIA because he's such a freak. I mean, a stone cold weirdo, and not in the same vein as Lemay. Very different because, especially because he, he thought himself so like urbane. But I mean, he is. Uh, I guess, I mean, much like the guy from the Exile, X-Files, the smoking man. I mean, Angleton had a cig in his mouth at all times, which is, uh, all, to be clear, you know, respect on that. None of the other stuff you did, but respect on that. Uh, but he's another one of these figures that was a link between, a real link between the underworld and the overworld here. I mean, he had a lot of mafia connects. Yeah, he cultivated uh, you know, some of these same uh, relationships that uh, William Harvey would later capitalize on. And uh, he, he seems to have been really involved in the manipulation of Oswald. Um, he, he once told Cy Hirsch um, it, during the 70s when it looked like he might be hung out to dry and it looked like it was p- the, the potential for them issuing a limited hangout of the Kennedy assassination was going to involve them sacrificing Angleton and Hunt. And he began leaking some things to like uh, reporters like Joe Trento and others. Uh, and he, he told Cy Hirsch, a mansion has many rooms. I don't know who killed Jack. And, you know, Hirsch is not a, Hirsch is good on many things, but not the Kennedy assassination. He took mm. like a million dollars for, uh, to write a book, uh, like something rethinking Camelot, or maybe that was, Oh, Charles that's right, book. right, but, right. Mm-hmm. But he did write a book on Kennedy that really trashed Kennedy. Uh, and it seemed to like he was taking a lot of information from all those sources that he has cultivated, you know, within the agency over the years for sometimes good purposes, sometimes bad purposes. But, um, He's also, if you see um, Nixon, Oliver Stone's Nixon, that scene in the director's cut where Sam Watterson plays Richard Helms, and they're having that conversation about about Kennedy or, and about other things as well, but about the CIA. Uh, not Kennedy's only mentioned a little bit, but the fact that they have Sam Watterson re- is really a composite of Helms and Angleton because it's uh, the Angleton part that's where he's with all these orchids, you know, he has all these orchids in the office. That was an Angleton thing. And he yeah, starts yeah, quoting yeah. like Yeats, you know, and, and mm. poetry. And that was Angleton, not Helms. Helms didn't, Helms didn't give a shit about flowers or poetry to my, to, uh, to my knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Angleton was like a, he was like, I mean, he grew up in Milan. Like he, he very much fancied himself like this. Yeah. Urbane, sophisticate, uh, and, and was just such a bizarre person in, in, uh, not like not like a lot of his contemporaries like helms for example is like a total like you know just like blockhead right and like angleton is just a completely different uh very bizarre personality for that reason yeah he's almost british in that way like they're they're all because every the british secret agent if they weren't well, most of them seem to have actually just worked for the KGB, but like the ones that didn't, even the ones that did too, were mostly just like failed poets in some way. Mm. Um, who failed professors, a lot of them. Right? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and successful child molesters. But it's, it's. I, I mean, I've heard him described as an Anglophile, and like that makes sense. You know, it's mm. it's you know, he is he is that, of that type. Yeah, they're the original kind of, uh, you know, uh, gangsters of. Capitalism. I mean, they invented capitalism. Really, they like started saying to all those common people, "Get off this, get off this land. We need it for sheep." Yeah, I mean that's like the beginning of capitalism, right? And then there's this problem of a surplus population, so they go out and take over Ireland, and then they go and even further west and go to the United States, and that's like 
in a nutshell, like the story of America, right? I mean, it's the, what is it in America? It's the uh, Virginia Company, right? And the uh, Massachusetts Bay Company. Like, mm-hmm. those are business ventures. Those aren't like, you know, I mean, that's their state to make money on an international, uh, you know, through international trade, right? Tobacco and, and such. And then Opium, when it was legal. Yeah, well, that was that comes a little yeah. bit later, but yeah. not. But that's even yeah. The American establishment and opium is there too. Um, and Angleton is he had regrets or not regrets, but later in life, you know, he was a Catholic ostensibly, and uh, late in his life, he's on his deathbed and he's talking to journalists, including Joe Trento, like I said, who was one of the people who was around him in those last years, and uh, he he followed Alan Dulles. He was sort of Alan Dulles one of the main people underneath Dulles. And he came to realize, or he came to at least admit, because I think he dies of lung cancer, because as you said, he enjoys He definitely constantly. dies of lung cancer, yes. Yes, of course. This is not a surprise ending for him. But uh, he said, you know, fundamentally, the founding fathers of U.S. intelligence were liars. Uh, the better you lied and the more you betrayed, the more likely you would be promoted. Outside of this duplicity, the only thing they had in common was a desire for absolute power. Uh, I did things that, looking back on my life, I regret, but I was a part of it. And I loved being in it. And then he started talking about the people that he worked with, you know, Dulles, Helms, and Wisner, called them the Grand Masters. And uh, Angleton said, if you were in a room with them, you were in a room full of people that you had to believe would deservedly end up in hell. Uh, I guess I will see them there soon. Jesus Christ. Yeah, Trento, Trent, Joe Trento's book that you mentioned, um, you know, uh, you can tell that it relies heavily on Angleton, but even he can't get out of the fact that Angleton wasn't very when he was eventually like at the upper, like the upper upper echelons, he wasn't very good at his job either because he got he got screwed by the Philby thing. Uh, I think he was he was pretty good boys with Philby, and of course Kim Philby, uh, you know, famous British MI6 agent who. Uh, like everybody else he worked with was working for the Soviet Union and who uh, famously defected. Uh, but he was a, he was at one point the liaison between the uh, MI6 and CIA and was pretty close with Angleton. And so uh, so Angleton went on like a spy hunt within the, the CIA, which turned up precisely zero people. Uh, and in fact, I can't remember if that, because I know that they talk a lot about Orlov in that book. I can't remember if that, that coincided with that. But, but yeah, the CIA... None of these guys are very good at catching actual spies. They're like it's more like they're more suited to catching like peasants who like uh don't want to like maybe give as many crops to the government or something like that. That's that's kind of more their 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 pay grade. I mean Angleton eventually started investigating Kissinger as as for being a potential KGB mole. I mean like that was the that was the level that he he was taken to. I think the Philby thing like legitimately broke him. Like that was yeah, really, like, yeah, yeah. He really like fake friends. Yeah, no. I have a funny. I have a funny Philby story for for maybe after. But uh, I but love Philby. He, I he's one Cambridge of my favorite Five, guys. Like really, Incredible. I got a lot of heart for them. Like yeah, oh, really absolutely. respect. Like yeah. what's his name? Burgess gets like caught, and then they just like uh, you can just keep you can just hang out. Like, <laughs> you can just hang out. Like <laughs> uh, you just go ha- literally hanging out with the Queen yeah. after being yeah. caught, yeah. and yeah. then yeah. still spying. I mean, yeah. the guy is an incredible, incredible Legend. group of guys. Legend. Yeah, Philby marries and like a Nazi in Britain, and just like to own order to spy. I mean. Granted, I think Philby was maybe not too interested in having sex with women, but like still, I mean, what an incredible pair of balls to just like marry a lady in order to spy on her friends um, and to get to get connections. But uh, 
Anyways, back to back to the the the, the story at hand here. So all these guys, you know, these CIA guys, you know, uh, Air Force guys, and all this stuff. I mean, like we were talking about last episode, they are fucking laser eyes on Cuba. Bad pigs doesn't work out, and so they they do a couple of couple of operations. We got mongoose, uh, which I guess uh, there were like thirty two phases to the operation mongoose, which I guess corresponds to that there's thirty two different kinds of mongoose. Mongoose. That's so annoying. I, I thought I thought it was adorable, Liz, and I figured you would like that fact, which is why I said it, but you didn't. So now I regret it. Uh, and then Operation Northwoods, which actually I believe we've talked about in some of our nine eleven episode a nine eleven episodes with Ben. Um, but I think you can see a lot of the genesis for the actual Kennedy killing operation out of those two prior CIA operations. And there's additionally another part of it is that it, in the run up to 1963, the the military brass who we have established are a, a, a is a, this is a collection of psychos. Mm-hmm. They have come to Kennedy with a plan, you know, like this is really Dr. Strangelove type uh, craziness. And they say, Mr. President, we've been looking at the missiles and the intelligence reports, and it looks like at, around the la- later months of 1963, we're going to have an advantage such that we could launch a preemptive nuclear strike against yes. them. Okay. And that nuclear issue hangs over the Kennedy uh, assassination and the response to it and the, and, the, and the necessity, when you talk about the cover-ups, to cover up any conspiracy which on the surface appears to be a communist conspiracy because Oswald doesn't really do much except for draw attention to himself in such a way as to scream, I am a communist. Look at me mm-hmm. doing communist things. I am so obviously He's a, a communist. He's a Marxist Leninist, not a communist. <laughs> yeah. Don't right. So <laughs> that, that the, the Northwoods thing, Kennedy puts the kibosh on that. He's, he refuses that. That wasn't known about until really after the JFK records act. Thanks to, thanks to Stone's movie. And that's one of the documents that comes out in James Bamford's book on the NSA, this whole Northwoods false flag terror pretext for Cuba um, to kill Americans, really, to justify an invasion. Kennedy would not go along with it, but the Joint Chiefs, they were totally in favor of it. Um, and additionally, Mongoose gets canceled, you know, after the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's sort of a relaxation about, you know, they kind of agree that they're not going to invade Cuba as part of that. But there were elements of Mongoose that, you know, don't seem to have been approved by Kennedy this issue of the assassination plots against Castro, it's the CIA inspector general report ultimately came out and said, Kennedy never knew about these things, never authorized it. And it's never been shown that it is. People you know, say this all the time. Oh, he was trying to kill Castro. Kennedy authorized this. This has never been proven. The CIA, after the death of uh, the Kennedys, this, they issue an inspector general report that says the Kennedys never authorized these things. In this case, the CIA was acting on its own uh, without them. And that Kennedy was really angry when it was brought to his attention that this was happening. It, it was because of one of his mistresses being involved romantically with Sam Giancana. So Kennedy and Sam Giancana were having sex with the same woman. There um, were there was some, there times, was some but, overlap. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. overlap with, with a lot Kennedy of ladies. Some, yeah, yeah. I mean, Bobby. Kennedy had had too many women to keep tabs on where they were all the time, and you know this could happen to anyone maybe yeah yeah um, no totally <laughs> maybe <laughs> i hate when i've yeah always happens oh no Marilyn's with with my brother today oh man you're having sex with the top mob boss in <laughs> yeah chicago you know which is a pretty mobbed up place traditionally right so and then mongoose 
as I understand it, it was actually Ed Lansdale again without authorization who was running the mm-hmm. um, assassination aspect of of mongoose, and you know they recruit all these mobsters to to help them with that. So uh, these operations are all in place, and it all you know all these things go back to Cuba. There's so many Cuba connections with uh, Oswald, everybody he hangs out with, Jack Ruby's Cuban connections to you know mobsters, organized crime, and Cuba, of uh, and you know the mob bosses in uh, like Chicago, for example, he came from Chicago. So oh, there's this, this whole milieu of mob, it's connections to intelligence and military operations, paramilitary operations. Uh, these are, they're, they're interwoven between every aspect of the assassination. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming when you look at it now uh, to try to defend this like lone nut version of this is, is kind of silly. Uh, well, there is a dual nut theory. <laughs> well, I guess yeah. that would, that was what you yeah. could call it since there are two guys. So exactly yeah. that I've yeah. never met and are totally unrelated. Yeah. I've never <laughs> thought of that calling it the dual nut theory. Of the <laughs> it makes it mission, sound but that actually sillier. is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it good. is a dual nut theory. Yeah. Magic bullets and dual nuts. Well, I mean, famously, the the CIA's uh, many different, sometimes very funny attempts to kill Fidel Castro all fail. I mean, they they try to kill him any number of ways through poison diving suits, exploding cigars, and then through less, um, well, or I I would say more outrageous ways like uh, giving, trying to make him lose his hair or his beard rather so that people respect him less when actually maybe he he doesn't know that CIA didn't know that actually if you can't grow that good of a beard, people actually respect you more. Um, (laughs) In fact, that's actually seen as a sign of virility because so much of it is focused on other parts of your body. Um, But, but you know, they, they, you know, there's uh, recently there's that book on, um, you got Poisoner in Chief that just came out. Uh, you know, there's there's in every history of the CIA, they always talk about you know th- these different assassination plots. But but you know, assassination plots require assassins, right? And assassins need to be hired by people. They need to be trained by people. They need to sort of be kept in a certain person's rolodex. Um, and I think that's something to to really consider here because what, what what was Operation Mongoose was among many other things an assassination. Part of it was an assassination program. Operation Northwoods and the planning of Operation Northwoods goes goes and shows us a little glimpse of what like a false flag or a false narratives put out. Uh, and in and, and, and of course both of these things involve. Cuban exiles. Now, Cuban exiles, we were talking about this a little before we recorded, but Cuban exiles, I mean, maybe actually it was last episode, I can't remember. We were talking about this at some point in recent history, um, are sort of the perfect group for the CIA to use because, first of all, they're stateless. So they're in some way at your mercy, right? Like, you know, you kind of have ultimate control. You can kick them out of your country. You can kick them back to the country of origin, which would not go good for them. Uh, but you have quite a lot of control over them and you have, you know, most of them are kind of gathered in one place or as we'll see also in new Orleans as well, or in Louisiana. Um, but you know, a lot of them are in Florida, uh, their, their, their immediate foreign policy, or excuse me, I guess not for them foreign policy, but their immediate policy goals sort of coincide with, with the CIAs. Uh, and a lot of them are, turns out a lot of fucking killers came over. I mean, Castro also sent a lot of people from the prisons over, um, you know, some of whom had been in prison for, you know, pretty bad crimes. Some of whom were obviously just sort of prisoners of war. Uh, but the, these people really did not like Castro. And so many of them were politically on the extreme right. 
And we'll see that really starting with them coming to America, they'll be used by the uh, by by the U.S. government in a huge variety of operations over the next decades. Um, you know, or the murder of Orlando Letier uh, that we talked about in uh, in D.C. Uh, you know, um, former uh, official in Chile under Allende, you know, killed by Cubans uh, along with a CIA officer, a white CIA officer. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but another guy who was assassinated in uh, a former Chilean official who was uh, uh, was not successfully, but a guy tried to assassinate him in Rome, I believe, done by a Cuban. Um, and you know, they they blew up airliners, all these kind of things. So yeah. they are really like they become this sort of muscle for hire from both the CIA and the mafia. Uh, and so Cuban exiles, uh, as we'll see, play a fairly important role here. Even if you need somebody to uh, break into a hotel, uh, yeah, in, in, I was going to say, yeah, yes. steal some documents, you might hire some Cubans. Yeah, yeah I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? Like you say, they they don't have they don't have these roots down. They're at your mercy. They're highly ideologically motivated, and then they also have a personal grudge because you know many of their buddies got pinched at the Bay of Pigs or other failed attempts. So there's a there's a, just this perfect confluence. Uh, and then once, once all of that's, you know, once, once Castro is fully installed, there's nothing you can do about that. Uh, they only know how to do one thing. And so that's, that's what the CIA is going to hire them to do basically until they die. The, uh, Castro is criticized by, you know, sort of, especially right wingers, but just American, you know, pro American people in general for the revolution and executing people after the fact, you know, because I think there's something like 200 executions of former regime people, you know, it's like just send them to the wall and shoot them or whatever. Yeah. And you know, if you believe in the death penalty or not, I'm not even going to try to get into that, but the, there were thousands and thousands of political murders in Cuba that were carried Mm -hmm. out by the uh, regime, you know, allied forces. And that's basically, you know, I mean, I'm sure some of them didn't make it over, but like, that's the Cuban exiles. That's like, yeah, you know, we used to, this used to be our job over there. This is my skill set. So this is going to probably be my career now. And a huge number of like even Bay of Pigs veterans because the U.S. has to bail them out, you know, pay money to get them out from Castro. Twenty six mil. It's pretty embarrassing. Castro, the Players Club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's embarrassing for them. But a, a huge number, uh, you know, Peter Del Scott documents this. But a large percentage of them in, get involved in drug trafficking later. I mean, they they get arrested in different ways and face different sentences for uh, their role in the drug traffic when it turns out they can't be protected by their traditional protectors so this is that's what they do they later are involved in organized crime and uh killing people wherever they need to be killed uh as you point out in uh, the letalier murder and uh, you know they help set up things like operation condor and uh mm-hmm. felix rodriguez is one of these guys yeah right he was a cuban exile and he later kills shay guevara in bolivia uh he gets involved in iran contra he wears He's a character in Iran Contra. He wears um, Che Guevara's wristwatch for the rest of his life. Um, really? He might even still be alive. Yeah, because he, he killed him down there and he kept a souvenir, the wristwatch, and was always happy to wear it around. Uh, so if you're like, you know, if you have a fascist social circle, that's like a real uh, status symbol. If you are a listener of this podcast, I am doing, I'm finally putting out my first bounty, not in any violent way, but please bring me that wristwatch and I will raise $500,000 for you. Brace, you were playing with fire with, with that one. I don't know. If- Brace, you mentioned New Orleans. I work I mean- for the CIA now. I'm not even like these one of these guys. So don't worry, I'm protected. Now, you mentioned New Orleans, and we should say that, like, you know, it's very easy to see. There's, like, you know, right on the map from Cuba to Miami, up to New Orleans, down through Texas, 
you know, like around the Gulf and then straight out into Mexico. And there's, I mean, that's what it was. It was all these sort of like little camps, either at, you know, mob run, CIA run, whatever term you want to use, like little training camps, either run out of, as we'll see, law offices or, you know, kind of coffee shops, whatever we want to say, um, that kind of dotted the map that were um, like trading posts or, or training camps or meetups or, you know, what have you that are, you know, gun dumps, you know, they're running weapons all along the Gulf Coast through this. And I mean, it's a straight shot, you know, it makes total sense um, for whatever ops that you're running, assassins, guns, drugs, uh, you know, all three. Yeah, in, in New Orleans, that's one of the things that was going on in that office where Lee Harvey Oswald was yeah, working absolutely. as a communist, you know, <laughs> as a communist leafleter, with, even though he only did it one one time. Um, he's working in an office where there's a bunch of mongoose operations and gun, yeah. you know, gun running and so on. Lots of anti-Castro Cubans, but they're inclusive. They're pioneers of inclusivity and diversity mm-hmm. because they don't mind this communist leafleter uh, yeah. sharing office space with them. Rabid anti-communists welcoming communists into the fold. <laughs> the Fair Play for uh, Cuba Committee, New Orleans chapter, which the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was a real organization. Uh, I'm sure penetrated at every level, but like, you know, it was an actual organization. Um, in New Orleans, it did seem to only have one, maybe two, although we don't know who the other member is, uh, members. And uh, the one that we do know about and the only one that's ever been photographed or mentioned by name is uh, is one Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, the other member was Alec Hiddell, which was Lee Harvey Oswald's alias. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, when he did the leafleting, he he didn't have anybody else to go with him, so he had to no. literally just pay somebody to go with him right. to do that leafleting. I mean, he could not scrounge up one other solitary person to go yeah. with him. Which just says a lot. There's no solidarity in this society. <laughs> I mean, my God, a, a charmer like Lee comes up to you and asks you to hand out some uh, some pamphlets. It's incredible. But somehow, though, he did end up getting in a fist fight with three uh, Cuban exiles um, who were members of CIA. Like this, and then this isn't. I, I want to be clear here about this kind of stuff. This isn't like us making like a connection or whatever. This is just like proven fact. The guys themselves are on record admitting it like countless times. It's not like a, it's not like a aspersion or anything like this, but you know, three members of a CIA, uh, I, I don't know if I want to say backed or created by, but you know, a CIA organization made up of Cuban exiles, uh, somehow tracked down Lee when he was handing these out and then gotten this very public, uh, and, and photographed fist fight mm. with Lee. Um, you know, to uh, yeah. uh, over him handing these these leaflets out, and uh, and to this day, I actually read a uh, more recent interview with one of them, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't know. We you know we just we heard about this, and uh, you know, we just had to go down there." It's like, well, who did you hear about it from? It's also funny remember. how communist Lee Harvey Oswald asked to speak with an FBI agent when he was arrested in New Orleans. That's unusual behavior for a communist, right? (laughs) Okay, no, it's not, first of all. No, it's not. (laughs) You know, sometimes you're like, well, let me speak to the cops that are above the regular cops. It's like asking to see the manager. Yeah, it makes sense because he was on the FBI payroll for quite some time. Uh, recently, I think we heard of, of of even more infiltration of the Fair Play for Cuba community that mm. there were a number of the high ranking members were, were uh, you know, this was either proto, COINTELPRO. And it's, uh, you know, uh, as far as Oswald's activities with them, you know, in, in hindsight, it's an obvious sort of like alibi and provides this great 
you know, that specifically like do, having that fight very publicly and then doing this radio interview where he's sort of like uh, talking about his Marxist Leninist bona fides oh, right. and all of that. Like that's a perfect setup for then he kills the president. And then you could say this guy was a communist, sure. but also it may have just been, let's discredit the fair play for Cuba committee by having this asshole go out and get into a yeah. fight. Right. It's just like a, a, you know, part of their, you know, pro COINTELPRO pro uh, program. So it's, it's hard to understand exactly what happened, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that there was a little bit of both. Yeah. Alan Ginsburg was on the fair play for, for Cuba committee. So, yeah. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald is actually the second uh, most odious member of it. Uh, <laughs> well, what, what you're saying is pretty much accurate. It seems a, a COINTELPRO operation of some kind, whether it was actually CIA or not, it's known that the CIA was carrying out COINT, uh, anti-fair play for Cuba committee operations illegally because they're not supposed to operate on domestic soil, but they were doing that. And the people in charge of that were David Datley Phillips and uh, James McCord was one of the people uh, who's also a very, uh, you know, sinister figure in, uh, in Watergate, very strange figure seems to have bungled the operation on purpose, but that, that's for another, that's for another day. Um, and Bringiere, the guy that you, he gets into a fight with the more prominent one out there in new Orleans is Carlos Bringiere. And he's, Part of the DRE or uh, Directorio Revolucionario uh, Estudantil or something that whatever yeah, Student Revolutionary Directorate yeah. right and they were CIA front they're the people who on the day that Oswald gets arrested immediately leak this information to the press or provide it to the press about um, about Oswald and his communist connections and all that he does in New Orleans you know with this Fair Play for Cuba business operating out of a right-winger's office who's involved in mongoose operations, Guy Bannister. This is depicted in JFK, which hopefully your audience has seen or will see soon. Fantastic. Really great flick. depiction of this. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite. All Very entertaining. Movies. And um, he he goes on this radio show later with Carlos Bringier, and that's also the, run by this guy, Ed Butler, who run who is uh, working for the CIA and an organization that the CIA is funding. And while he's in the process of this interview, it comes out that he's been to, that he defected to the Soviet Union, that he's a Marxist. Okay, and this discredits the Fair Play for Cuba committee. That's all he his visit to New Orleans does. He doesn't engage in anything that you could call organizing or even a plan that would seem like organizing in any way. We know the CIA was involved in anti Fair Play for Cuba committee uh, mm. operations. And he, not only does he just go to New Orleans, I mean, people have reasons to go to New Orleans. I mean, I think it would be fun to go to New Orleans you Sounds know, great. at some point, but he, uh, he leaves his wife and, and a, at least one kid back in Dallas just to go to work out of a right winger, hard right wing XFBI operation mongoose facilitators office. You know, the, because the address he foolishly prints it on one of the pamphlets and that ends yeah, up in that the Warren Commission. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's how we, we know that it's, it's obvious really what he was doing and it yeah. doesn't, it's the only explanation that makes any sense uh, whatsoever that he was there. He, he was involved in doing something to discredit the fair play for committee for Cuba committee, which is later used to give him the veneer of being a dedicated communist. Right. I know. I don't want to get into Oswald too much because we're going to have to devote like at least, you know, a lot of time talking about him, but it is true. I mean, the CIA had, you know, entire programs where they were having, you know, unbeknownst to the assets or not, developing them and developing dossiers for them that could be used in case of, I, I guess, needing them as um, scapegoats 
or patsies in in Lee's words, uh, you know, for whatever. And so it's one of those things, I think, where it's like, yeah, I was discrediting the Fair Play for Cuba committee while at the same time making footprints in case of needing Lee for an operation in Dallas or, you know, you know, Chicago, which didn't happen or whatever, right? Or DC, which also didn't happen. And it seems like maybe he might have been involved in something there. But again, we'll get into all of that, I promise. I just, I don't want to like say little things and not get into too much when so much time is required talking about him. So I've often had own visions, visions of my own death um, several times throughout my life, uh, at, t- at some points nightly. Uh, is there any indication that JFK, at this point, you know, 1963, 1962, everyone's really mad at him. He's pissing off a lot of the kind of people that you don't want to piss off, I guess, in the terms of, uh, of, of uh, so, you know, the sort of novels of the day, some real heavy characters. Uh, is there any idea that he kind of got what was going on? Yeah, I mean, there were, and it wasn't just JFK that sort of had a sense of this. There were even rumblings in some of, you know, the elite press that the, and this was obviously before we know, you know, before we knew about the CIA, what we know now, but that they were going really off the rails in Vietnam in particular, mm-hmm. and that they uh, were really, you know, grabbing foreign policy for themselves, that they were deciding what was going to happen over there. Uh, and and in particular, the fear that, um that if there was going to be a coup, that the CIA would be responsible. And actually, even the, the Times had an article in late uh, in October of '63, I think, where they where they literally said, "If the United States ever experiences a coup, it will come from the CIA and not the Pentagon." Which uh, you know, the, the traditional coup comes from the military leaders. But it was understood that the CIA was going to be the source of that. And JFK um, seemed to have an idea uh, that that was going to happen. And and um, you know, there's the the movie Seven Days in May. Uh, which is sort of a representation of um, of of this kind of fear, and it, uh, that movie in particular, has, I think, sort of created this uh, degree of cultural awareness about uh, the idea of these of of something like this happening. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know, Aaron. You mentioned that there's a there's a quote from JFK that he sort of that he sort of saw saw the potential for this. Yeah, the, there was a novel written called Seven Days in May, like, as you mentioned, and it was about a president who was sort of a liberal reformer who was trying to, uh, you know, sign a peace treaty with, with Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, you know, I think related to nuclear weapons, and that he was opposed by elements in the military. And in this novel, they organize a coup to overthrow him using a sort of secret continuity of government doomsday operations and facilities to carry this out. And uh, Kennedy read this book, and he was asked about it. You know, could this could this actually happen? You know, what do you think of this book? And he said, "Well, you know, the dialogue's a little weird. Um, I, I, you know, but the actual part about the generals, uh, if there was a young president, he, um, he could face something like that." And the quote from his, he says that if you keep pissing them off, like with the Bay of Pigs, he finally says, and this is a quote from him: "If there were a third Bay of Pigs, it could happen." Uh, and then he paused and said, "But it won't happen on my watch." And so he recognizes this possibility, and he actually uh, has his press secretary, Pierre Salinger, reach out to John Frankenheimer, the director of uh, The Manchurian Candidate and other films, to uh, make this movie, Seven Days in May. And he, uh, Frankenheimer agrees, and Kennedy, uh, in order to help him even more with this, he arranges to be out of Washington uh, for a day. 
uh, and going into, uh, you know, Martha's Vineyard or something like that so that they can film in front of the White House. And so this movie is set to be uh, released, um, I think, in early, maybe in early uh, 1964 or late 1963. And on the day that Kennedy is assassinated, as I understand it, there was a full page ad for Seven Days in May that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, And the stories that you mentioned that came came out in October 2nd. Uh, that's the that's actually the phrase they use to describe a coup that could happen, and it's from a high source. They don't know who it is, and it appears in uh, I think the Washington Examiner by a guy named Starnes, and then there's a New York Times version that reports on the same story. But uh, the CIA's growth was likened to a malignancy, which the very high official they still don't know who this is was not sure even the White House could control any longer, and he says you mentioned this quote earlier, but the act the to have a, a more literal translation. If the U.S. ever experiences a seven days in May, it'll come from the CIA, not the Pentagon, and that they are a tremendous power uh, and totally unaccountable to anyone. Um, and so this is appearing in, you know, the month before the president is assassinated. Uh, so this is mm-hmm. something that I think it went largely unremarked upon by the press, I think, because the prospect of it is just too much to, to revisit for a while. But uh, Kennedy seemed to have an inkling of what had happened. And Robert Kennedy had a sense of what happened right away. He actually mm. accused some Cubans of like, your guys did this, you know, uh, anti-Castro Cubans. And um, so he, he actually kind of had a good sense of what had happened right away. Uh, and just also, which was remarkable about it, is the Attorney General of the United States, the President's brother, has a sense of what happens and also has a sense that he can't do anything about it. It's interesting when you go back to events like this and you if you look into like what the media is printing in the months leading up to a, an event, we'll say, it's it's shocking what you'll find. Um it's, I, you know, I don't want to say easter egg because that's the wrong kind of thing, but it sometimes it fucking feels like that when you see some of the ways things are put or the way that um like little bits get thrown in stories and quotes from unnamed sources and what have you that it's almost, I mean, it, it is, you know, it's almost like pension esque. I mean, it makes you kind of start going insane a little bit and makes you really question some things, but this is a perfect example of that. You have to imagine if it's, if it's being printed in the papers, um, like the amount of elite chatter that is happening around right. this simultaneous to this, yeah. right? Like this is our, as the public, we get this little window into it, which is that it comes out as a New York Times story. But you've got to, you've got to imagine that um, there were a lot of people who were, were privy that something was going on, whether they knew of a specific plot, but, but understood that, you know, steps were being taken, things were underway to attempt to remove mm-hmm. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And you see this little, this little, you know, sliver of it in this New York Times story uh, but obviously, you know, Kennedy understood the logic of it, and I'm sure many, many other people did. So Peter Dale Scott has a story about this uh, that that I, I think actually is relevant here. Um, he was a Canadian diplomat for a time, and his father was, uh, you know, a famous Canadian uh, poet, one of the most famous ones, you know, ever, I think. And so he knew people that were, you know, more establishment connected than, you know, a lot of people. And in 1963, he was at some kind of function, and among the attendees there uh, were, was a uh, person from Europe who, uh, with right-wing politics who was very well-to-do, and he and a couple other people were just complaining about Kennedy and everything that Kennedy was doing that they didn't like. And eventually, uh, this older European gentleman says, well, 
don't worry, the old man is going to take care of it. And Peter, you know, eventually comes to think that he was referring to Alan Dulles mm. in this case. So the number of people that knew about it, there's also that Joseph Miltier fellow who said, who's connected to like right, far right wing groups. And he was recorded by an FBI agent saying that Kennedy's going to be assassinated. It's going to be from an office building with a high powered rifle. Mm. You know, that's the another, guy, right? Uh, yeah, I believe, I believe so. Yeah. And so there were other, there were other people who seemed to have uh, some, some foreknowledge of this. And you mentioned the other plots against him. There was one in Miami that seemed to have been aborted and then one in Chicago, which uh, we could get into. Um, I want to mention before we get to that too, I I, I brought up the Bircher thing because in Jack Ruby's uh, transcript before the Warren Commission, he is talking about needing to be taken to, uh, I believe it's before the Warren Commission. Yeah, it is. Uh, He needs to be taken to Washington uh, because among other things, he's afraid that the Birchers will get him, um, which uh, you know there is, is does make one raise one's eyebrows. <laughs> but yeah, the Chicago plot. I think I think it would be germane to talk about that a little bit because that that isn't really well known. Yeah, it, it is a strange day, November second, nineteen sixty three, because Kennedy is. It's it's known now that he's trying to deal with Vietnam and get out of there. And he's had problems with Noden Diem, who is a fellow Catholic, but also kind of a right-wing despot that was put in there by Ed Lansdale. Mm-hmm. And Ed Lansdale basically says, I mean, even Ed Lansdale admits, yeah, I mean, what do you want me to do? Make a democracy? You have me put in a fascist or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, And yeah. so at some points, Kennedy is thinking, well, what if I can't... Kennedy wants to get a government in South Vietnam that will allow them to withdraw and compromise with some sort of neutralist position. So they can say that he can say the government wants us to leave. We can't be imperialists. We're not the colonial power like Britain. We can leave. And they wanted to fuzz it up sort of like they did in Laos and have some sort of neutralist solution. Right. And it's not clear that Diem is going to be that guy. And so earlier Kennedy had okayed given the okay to allow for some coup planning, right. In case they wanted to get rid of uh, Diem and put in someone who would actually help them to achieve Kennedy's goal of what I and others believe to be withdrawal from Vietnam. Now, on November 2nd, Kennedy is out of town and there's a cable sent. And I've never seen that Kennedy authorized this, but he did talk about it after the fact and, and, and you know, who was really in support of it and who wasn't. And Nodinzium gets assassinated on November 2nd, 1963. Um, and the cable's actually sent by Avril Harriman from the Harriman family of railroad robber barons, mm-hmm. you know, the super establishment guy, Avril Harriman. And uh, Hillsman, who was a Rockefeller guy, from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and sort of the Deputy Secretary of State or something like that. And they send it, they, they give the telegram saying, it's a go, you know, launch this coup. And so not only is there a, a is DM overthrown, but he's assassinated. And Kennedy definitely didn't want this His to happen. His brother he too. Was really, he was really, sh- yeah, and he was really shaken by this. And they were very corrupt, involved in the heroin trade also, uh, but that was kind of, uh, you know, Derek or whatever for that position. But um, they, uh, they are assassinated in a brutal way and Kennedy feels responsible for it. And he didn't, he doesn't seem to have wanted it to happen, but on that same day, he was supposed to go to Chicago to, uh, to, to make a, a visit to Chicago and it gets canceled because of a plot that gets exposed involving assassination, you know, uh, an apparent assassination plot. And the people they arrest are anti Castro Cubans, surprise, surprise. 
and they're a, they they there are there's a lot of rifles and ammunition seized and they they do arrest these guys but somehow they get released without anybody taking down their names so they don't know who they are well it's but, spanish and so they might not have known how to like write it you know they'd be like what are you guys talking about you know it's chicago in the early 60s so you know not a very woke police force in those days right it, it, it's a very strange set of circumstances yeah. there and um there's a there even appears to be a guy very similar to Oswald, mm-hmm. uh, but not quite as flamboyantly communist, but uh, somebody who looks to be no, he's stationed. a bircher, I believe, actually, or he was like kind of right wing, kind of little nut nut job, a little bit. Yeah, he had some psychological problems, and his name was Tar- Thomas Arthur Valley, and he had also been or, or Valet, I don't know how you pronounce it, and he had been at that same base in Atsugi uh, in Tokyo, you know, the, the place that was a military base, but also CIA because the U-2 mm-hmm. flights were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had an apartment overlooking a hairpin curve in the parade route, like pretty much analogous to the one in Dallas where Kennedy was shot. So it seems like he, there was going to be some sort of crossfire, you know, assassination plot there with a patsy lined up already um, named Thomas Arthur Valley. And, that Kennedy got wind of this and uh, the secret service agent, first black secret service agent ever on the presidential detail named Abraham Bolden. Belden. He, he, <laughs> he finds out about, he, he learns about this in, in Chicago. And after the president's assassinated, he travels to Washington DC to try to speak with the Warren commission and they throw him in jail on the basis of very dubious evidence that's, you know, fabricated. It's found out later by, you know, mafia connected people and they keep him from ever testifying or telling his mm-hmm. story for years and years and years, um, which is, you know, it really indicates some some that there are troubling parallels yeah. between these these two these two events. Yeah, he I, Bolden had actually quit the Secret Service, I believe, at that point in order to uh, because because uh, a I think traveling to the South, he was made to sleep in segregated quarters, which he. Uh, quite understandably did not like, but B because everyone else in the secret service kept talking about how like, Oh yeah, someone tries to shoot Kennedy. I'll get my ass out of there, which to be clear, if I'm in the secret service, I'd be like, well, I'm 50, 50 on the whole jumping in front of the bullet thing. But uh, you know, no matter who the president is, but, uh, but I can, I can imagine, you know, it's a lot of these guys, secret service. I mean, these guys are fucking cops, man, you know? And like, yeah. they, they're not, they're not digging. And they're not only cops, they're treasury cops, which is my most hated kind of cop. Um, but, uh, but you know, they're not too, they're probably not too uh, excited about this, you know, this effete little Jack Kennedy prancing around uh, I mean, you, in the white house. Yeah. You can watch uh, interviews with Abraham Bolden. I mean, he's like very mild mannered, soft spoken. All this stuff is fact. I mean, it's out there. This is not, none of this is speculation. This is all, they're very much real. And I encourage people to to watch these interviews. You know, they're out there. Um, it's quite shocking that the Warren Commission just threw him away. You know, Bolden is a very nice guy. And uh, I'm actually Facebook friends with him. And oh. he's, he's a very, he's in his 90s. Uh, and he's a very sweet guy. Does he do interviews? <laughs> I don't know. He has not so long ago, but I don't know. He is really getting up there. If, uh you know, he's in his, I think he's getting into mid late nineties. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I guess that's pretty fucking old. 
Um, so you know this plot gets foiled, and this is this is this is supposed to happen on the same day that the DM brothers. I want to make that clear: the brothers are killed inside of an APC in Saigon. Uh, you know, about 19 days, I think, before Kennedy is actually, uh, 20 days before Kennedy is actually assassinated himself. And so things are a little electric at this point. Yeah, there's actually a cool story about Madame New and some really crazy comments that she makes. There's a quote from her that Peter Del Scott and others write about. After that, you know, that famous picture of the guy setting himself on fire, she said, mm. let them burn. If the Buddhists wish to have another barbecue, I will be glad to supply the gasoline and a match. Oof. One point I want to make real quick about the the Chicago plot, I forgot what I was saying, the Chicago plot, is that, I mean, the, the idea, it seems to be very clear, and other, you know, I'm not making this up, I mean, other people have made this point, but that the the idea was to have the dual assassinations at the same time in order to blame it on the Soviet Union eventually, which, you know, we'll get to is also supposed to be one of the fall guys for the JFK assassination. Um, but with, with the goal of then escalating Vietnam, like that was, and, and, you know, ideally probably, you know, Cuba as well, but really that, that, you know, the spectacular kind of site of two of like two major assassinations was enough to heat up the Cold War, and that that was really the goal of of the entire kind of show. I hate calling it that, but that's really what it feels like at this point. Yeah, that that's it's kind. It's hard to speculate exactly how they would have uh, parlayed an assassination in Chicago into something like that. But generally, you're talking about right, really hard right wing figures with hard right wing goals. So whatever it was going to do uh you know it's quite possible that it, you know that vietnam and escalation in vietnam was was going that and some sort of connection to be made between the two was uh the goal of uh you know one goal of of these people um you know that that's quite possible so i'm ready to get in the uh, open top limousine uh there's only four of us that so there are six seats uh i and and head on down to dealey plaza uh next time on truanon but uh, but for now tonight, fellas, it is a wrap, and it has been uh, a pleasure to see to to have you guys on once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. This was really fun. Um, all right. Well, get up onto the sixth floor, load that Carcano rifle, and take aim at my head because this episode is over. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Race, have you ever been to Dallas? I have. I actually will send you a picture once I find it of me. I don't on need the... proof. I'm just asking. No. Oh, let me finish the fucking sentence. For what? What do you think I was going to send you a picture of? Just me in Dallas? No, you fucking asshole. I was going to send you a picture. Of... Now I'm not going to send it to you, and you're not going to know what it was. I don't care. I don't need any photos. I'm going to send you another picture, now, <laughs> and you're really not going to like it. You're really not going to like it, Liz. I've been to Dallas. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Well, I don't care. Where'd you, did you go to the X? The X? Yeah. Where fucking Kennedy was killed oh, that they painted. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah me too. That's what I was going to send you a picture of. Oh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. I look insane in it. I'm wearing a leather vest. Oh, send me the picture. Okay. But you can't <laughs> show it to anybody.
Okay. Um, Everyone, hello. We've got more episodes coming of JFK 101. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to call it that. I think that's a bad name. I think we should call it that because we called it. Let's, let's, let's let the audience hear this. Let's let the audience hear this deliberation. <laughs> we should call it JFK 101 because on the episode we did with Aaron before, it was called Deep State 101. Oh, and yeah. this is kind of a 101 thing. We're not going to do the, you know, blah, 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 blah about it. We yeah. might, though, is the thing. I know, but there's so much. I, I would feel bad calling it like a 103 or something because there's oh, yeah. so much It's definitely detail. not a two or a three level. No. Like oh. a graduate level? Is that how oh, it works? absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 203, like you're like, I'm in science 203. Yeah, that's like next level. Not me, bitch. I knew it already. They didn't even <laughs> accept me to college because they're like, why would you go here? You know all this stuff. <laughs> Anyways, my name is brace my name is liz we're joined by producer young chomsky and music by stellium and uh wow we did that we sound like fucking psychos right now <laughs> we let us really end. we are literally all right if we this end this right like now very if we, stupid if we like end we no, no if we end this this minute that means four hours exactly so we're good okay wait you say the ending part oh yeah we'll see you next time bye-bye <laughs> 